According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are once again in Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 and following, 8 through 19, as we are dealing with the fourth point of study in this chapter. Parents must instill divine norms and standards into their children because the other influences of life are deadly. They are deadly. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Ask God the Father to humble us, to prepare our hearts for the authority of his word. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for this morning and the blessing we have to assemble together. We thank you, Father, for the truth of your word and the blessings of of, uh, embracing your word, Father. We thank you for the book of Proverbs that makes clear the blessings of, of wisdom and the appropriate embrace that keeps us from the inappropriate embrace. Father, uh, I do pray that you would take hold of this time together and bless our, bless our study. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. And as I said, we are in the midst of main point four. And uh, we've been here for some time now, actually, uh, in chapter one, that is, dealing with... Uh, Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, and her main point one, the background for the book and the author of these Proverbs and how it was that probably the worst way imaginable that a marriage can get started is uh, by adultery and uh, the death of a child and the murder of the ex-husband and the, and the uh, circumstances that put David and Bathsheba together. But then after the death of that first child, then the second child coming in the person of Solomon and a tremendous testimony to God's grace, a ten- tremendous testimony to uh, God who turns cursing into blessing and who works all things together for good. Under main point, there were some sub-points and other issues there, but under main point two, we introduced the concept of the Proverbs of Solomon and what is a mashal and what are the Mishle Shalomo, what, what are the uh, uh, Proverbs, that is the memorable sayings, the communications of truth that are memorable and um, uh, that, that, you, that stick with you. The idea of mashal, whether it's a proverb or a parable or uh, any other device, a riddle, any other device, if it, it maybe a rhyme, maybe a ditty, whatever it is, if it sticks with you in your thinking because it's memorable, then the Hebrews would call it a mashal, and we uh, can appreciate that. The third point of study, Solomon begins by explaining what, what the book of Proverbs will do and how to get started, and these are all the purpose clauses in verses 3 through 6, and then the beginning, which is found in verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So if we want to grow in wisdom, we have to begin with the fear of the Lord. We start there and we never leave there, all right? We stay in an attitude of the fear of the Lord in, uh, in every application. But look at these things that Proverbs does. I mean, I want this. Don't you want this? Don't you want to know wisdom and instruction? Don't you want to discern the sayings of understanding? Don't you want to receive instruction and wise behavior? I mean, everything that's described here is a benefit of what studying Proverbs will do. And I want those benefits. I want to grow in the way that uh, this book describes. Finally then, uh, there's a whole lot of subpoints there, but finally we come to main point four. 
Parents must instill divine norms and standards into their children. We are commanded to do so. The Word of God expects parents to train up a godly seed because the other influences of life are deadly. If you do not place God's values in your children, other values will pop in there. All right? The world is very much geared to putting cosmic viewpoint, to put the world's values into young people. And that's why we have to ground them in the Word of God as early as we can and as powerfully as we can. And so in this we have verses 8 and following. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. And ideally, of course, the best circumstances in the home are with an intact family structure, a father and a mother. They're going to get both sides of the uh, circumstances there. The masculine approach, the feminine approach, they are different, all right? They're designed to be complementary. They are designed, the, the woman's role is designed to assist the man's role. And we understand how this works. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. There's a difference between hearing and not forsaking. And I think that's significant. And we spent some time last week dealing with the verb shama, to hear. But it's to hear and to obey, to pay heed, to hear, to listen, and to obey. Thirty times that shama shows up in the book of Proverbs. All right? And I don't believe we looked at those, did we? We did not. All right. And that's where we'll pick it up here this morning. But to hear and to do not forsake. And this is key too, because this means that you're going to hear something and you're going to have to uh, be accountable for the rest of your life. That it's not that you can, it's not uh, like a fire and forget uh, missile or something that you know, once you listen to it, you, you never pay attention to it ever again. You know, there's a whole lot of things that you pick up in school and you, you listen long enough to take the test. And then once the test is over with or you finish the course or whatever, you don't care to ever think about it ever again. It has no impact in your life. And really, you know, who cares if the Battle of Hastings was in 1066 AD? I mean, big deal, right? But there are certain facts that you know that if you forget them tomorrow, won't hurt you. All right? But that's not the case in Proverbs. In the wisdom of the Word of God that we're saturating our children with, they need to hear it, they need to obey it, they need to live it, and never, ever, ever, ever forsake it. The language here of forsaking is, is as powerful as it is when, when uh, the Lord Himself says, I will neither leave you nor forsake you. All right, And so the idea of us forsaking the Word of God, I think, is an insult. It's an attack on the very faithfulness of God who has promised to never forsake us. You see how that works? In any event, uh, we have the expression here in Proverbs 1.8. It's going to be restated in a slightly different way in chapter 6. Proverbs 6.20, My son, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of of your mother. And in that case, the, the verb shama is replaced by a different verb for observation. Um, but I think it's a, a conceptual parallel, not a true synonym, but in any event, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk to you. All right, And this is the, the blessing that you have. If you plant the Word of God in your children, in your grandchildren, and so forth, you can't follow them around forever. But the Word of God sticks with them. That's the thing. All right, And when they leave home, what are they going to leave home with? You're not going to follow them around and you know, make decisions for them. They're going to make their own decisions. And hopefully they're going to make their decisions based on the Word of God, based upon their thinking being shaped and transformed by the renewing of their mind, by the power of the Word of God in their, in their soul. 
All right, so 30 times that Shama shows up here in the Proverbs. And, wow, that is a full listing of all 1,159 results in the Old Testament. We don't want to do that. Let's limit it to the Proverbs. We can save time. Unless you want to spend a month going through all 1,100 and however many times that is. All right. I mean, that use alone ought to tell you something. Any verb that has more than a thousand uses in the Old Testament, I mean, besides the, the, the pronouns and the, and the is and things like that, the adjectives and things like that, you can have the, you know, several thousand times in the Old Testament. But an actual verb of substance, an actual verb that communicates doctrine, that communicates uh, an activity, um, this is, uh, I think this is extraordinary. All right, so real quickly, we can just run through these. <clears throat> Proverbs 1.5, we already had it even before we get to verse 8, before we have the imperative to hear, we have the, uh, the expression, a wise man will hear an increase in learning. A man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. And I find that remarkable. The hearing is the first step, but the hearing is not the end of it. You have to hear and increase. Some people think, well, if I'm sitting in Bible class, isn't that enough, right? I heard it. Yeah, you heard it. But did you based upon what you heard, did you then increase? Did you then connect it with other things you've heard? Did you then uh, add it to your frame of reference and your understanding of the, the whole counsel of the Word of God in, in uh, totality? And so uh, we have it there. Verse 8 is our imperative we're looking at today. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. It is an order, it is a command to pay heed, to listen, to, uh, to comprehend what it is you're listening to. In English, we struggle because uh, hear and listen are different aspects, okay? There's a lot of times, you know, my children hear what I'm saying, but they're not listening, okay? They, they, they acknowledge that, that vibrations are coming from my vocal cords and are reaching their ears, but they're not really comprehending the, uh, the specific content of the, the words that are coming forth. There is a difference between hearing and listening. Well, shama doesn't let you get away with that. Shama means you're hearing, you're listening, and you are attentive to the content of what is being communicated. Still in chapter 1, we got it in verse 33. And uh, I tell you, he who listens to me, this is the contrast, the waywardness of the naive will kill them. The waywardness of the naive will kill them. Remember, everybody's naive to start. But you can't stay naive forever, and you're wrong if you stay naive too long. God has made provision for your naivete, and that's the doctrine of the Word of God, specifically wisdom literature from the Old Testament, will uh, help a young person grow up. The waywardness of the naive will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. Terrible thing. We'll talk about that when we get to complacency. I think we've got a whole culture of complacency. But he who listens to me shall live securely. You want a successful life? Get under doctrine, all right? If you're listening to the Word of God, if you're listening to the Lord God of hosts, there is a tremendous stability. Shall live securely. Remember, it's the doctrine. We're not tossed about by every wind of doctrine. We are anchored. We are secure. And we'll be at ease from the dread of evil. It doesn't mean that all the problems go away. It means that we have a relaxed mental attitude in spite of anything else that, that life throws at us because we're anchored on the rock. We have stability in the Word of God. So critical. All right. Uh, chapter 4 has our next couple of uses, verse 1 and verse 10. 
Again, it's admonition, parental admonition here in these first nine chapters, which I call parental wisdom. Hear, O sons, in the instruction of a father, and give attention that you may gain understanding. For I give you sound teaching. Do not abandon my instruction. And he goes on to describe his own childhood, how he grew up. This is the nature of how generations can bless succeeding generations and how generations who love the Lord can then uh, multiply that forward. For when I was a son to my father, tender and the only son on the side of my mother, then he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live. What a blessing to be able to take that from childhood and then pass it on to the next generation, pass it on to the next generation. It's not always the case. Sometimes you end up with a generation that was raised in a home of unbelievers and then they get saved. I call that generation zero, right? Or generation one. And then Sometimes it's just a rough, a rough time, but they, they do what they do in passing it to their children. Those children, though, do a whole lot better because they had it from birth. All right? So if, the, if like in my dad's case, he was raised in an unbelieving home, but then he got saved in his generation, and it started the chain forward, see? And so by the time, of course, he married my mother, and she was a believer, and so by the time they started having children, you have generation one, all right? And how much easier is it for that generation, and then the next generation, and, and so forth? Imagine a thousand of those in the new heavens and new earth, in the dispensation of the fullness of time. A thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ. What a delight that's going to be. Okay. Uh, so that's uh, Proverbs 4.1. We also have it in, uh, still in chapter 4, verse 10. Well, I'm on my page flipping. I can just click here. Uh, verse 10, Hear my son and accept my sayings. I need to make that bigger for you, don't I? Is that better? Probably should make this bigger too. All right. Hear my son and accept my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. All right. Understand that there are promises in the law when you honor your father and mother that there are temporal blessings, including length of life. All right. That I understand our days are numbered. We have X number of days. That is true. However, I believe we have X number of days, Y number of days, and Z number of days. All right. I'm going to put this in a document somewhere and, cop- and copyright it. And that way, uh, I don't know. But X number of days, we understand, in his sovereignty, in his predestination, in his eternal plan, and so forth. But God is flexible enough in his planning that he also has our Y number of days, that is the number of days whereby we can lengthen our life by virtue of our humility, by virtue of our honoring of our father and mother. God's got sovereign control over that too. When he added 15 years to Hezekiah's life, why was it 15 years? Why wasn't it 12 or 19 or 100? Why, why was it 15 years? It's because God has already in his sovereignty decreed our X number of days, our Y number of days, and our Z number of days. All right? The Z number of days, sadly, is the shortening of our life by virtue of the sin and the death or divine discipline or other consequences by which, in his permissive will, he allows a negative volition believer to do whatever, commit suicide or whatever in terms of shortening of the life by virtue of divine discipline, okay? And Scripture talks about that as well. It talks about the, the cutting off of the days and the sin unto death and other applications there. So um, to me, the whole foreknowledge of God in the predestination of our lives from, you know, he knows the number of our days before there was even one of them. Yes, that's true. 
but he knows the number of our days in every potential timeline based upon all the what-ifs. And uh, we can't possibly know that, but he does. Okay, And it's really an oversimplification to call it an X, a Y, and a Z. I think there's a myriad number of options, not just three, but the basic concept plus the extended plus the shortened. And he knows in his foreknowledge what it ends up being anyway. So in some respects, it's an academic discussion. All right, next use of Shammah. If I keep rambling, we won't get through all 30 of these. Now then, my sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. How many times do you have to tell your children to listen? (laughs) Well, there's a reason why. It comes up again and again and again and again in these nine chapters, in the parental wisdom portion of Proverbs, because generally speaking, unless your son is Jesus Christ, the sinless perfect one, um, it's going to take multiple times telling your child to listen. All right? I think every child ever born, except for, again, the sinless Christ, um, Mary and Joseph had it pretty easy, I think, with that first child, and then James and Jude and the rest of them came along. You have to tell them again and again and again and again and again, listen, 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 listen. Because see this again, it's the nature of immaturity. It's the design of humanity. It's the design of a child. He is the naive one. He is the simple one. He is the pethy. And he's not going to have the the most disciplined uh, of attention spans. He's not going to have a trained mind until you train him in his mind to have that kind of focus and that kind of attention. All right, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Of course, she's introduced in the verses prior to that, talking about the unstable woman here. The lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. Proverbs makes very clear the seductiveness of seduction. All right, and why it is such a snare. It's not a, it, it's, it wouldn't be such a snare if it wasn't such a snare, right? <laughs> the reason why seduction works is because it's seductive, and we need uh, the wisdom of the Word of God to sustain us in these temptations. What happens if you don't? Well, then you groan. You groan at your final end. You were taught better. You knew better. The shouldves, wouldves, and couldves were right there for you, and you didn't. You didn't listen. When your flesh and your body are consumed and you say, how I have hated instruction and my heart spurned reproof. You were commanded to listen. You were commanded to embrace wisdom. Instead, you embraced the harlot. I have not listened to the voice of my teachers nor inclined my ear to my instructors. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly in the congregation. All right, And sadly, those very words end up being prophetic because this is, gonna, this is pretty descriptive of the end of Solomon's life. Chapter 7, verse 24. Now therefore, my sons, listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her path. See, that's the problem. The heart. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. The remarkable thing, of course, is even though people know better, they allow their emotions to drive them. Even though they know better. They know they shouldn't date a non-believer, but oh, he's so nice. All right? I can change him. All right? And then they end up, now they're dating an unbeliever. Now uh, they've got an unbeliever that wants to marry them. Oh, they love him. All right? How many times have you heard that song before? Okay? And we'll hear it again and again and again and again. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. You're supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
ultimately speaking, if we can train up our children to love the Lord, then uh, we're going to be less concerned with who the vulnerability of our daughters and their hearts, right? If in fact they are, and our sons, not to pick on daughters only. All right. Proverbs 8 and verse 6. Man, we're still in this parental wisdom section of Proverbs, okay? And look at this in chapter 8, verse 6, verse 32, 33, 34. Listen, O fools. Let's see. Back up a little bit. Does not wisdom call and understanding lift up her voice? On top of the heights beside the way where the paths meet, she takes her stand. Beside the gates at the opening of the city, at the entrance of the doors, she cries out, To you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. O naive ones, understand prudence, and O fools, understand wisdom. Listen, for I will speak noble things, and the the opening of my lips will reveal right things. For my mouth will utter truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. So this is what we want to uh, pay heed to in the portrayal of wisdom as, as a woman throughout these early chapters here in Proverbs. Um, all the utterances of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing crooked or perverted in them. They all are straightforward to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction and not silver. Knowledge rather than choice is gold. In other words, if it's a choice of either or, it's not a choice. <laughs> if the devil throws it at you that, oh, well, no. Okay, and how many people compromise doctrine because, well, they've got to make some money. All right, well, wait a minute. If it's an either or choice, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Take my instruction and not silver. Knowledge rather than choice is gold. Wisdom is better than jewels, and all desirable things cannot compare with her. Okay? How many people uh, change jobs, change towns, move, relocate, and they go to a place and they say, well, yeah, I know there's no doctrine there, but man, the money sure is going to be good. All right? Or how many people identify with the will of God for their life? and understand the church they've been assigned to, the shepherd they've been assigned to, the geographic will of God of where they need to be in the plan of God to use their gifts, to pursue their ministry, to achieve their effects. And they base their geographic will of God on those principles. And then they say, all right, Father, I'm here. What job do you have for me here? What's the, what's the financial provision here? What's the employment situation here? And I think that pattern is more in line with Proverbs and with Matthew 6. All right, Uh, still in chapter 8, but down lower, verses 32, 33, and 34. Now therefore, O sons, listen to me, for blessed are they who keep my ways, or the, pretty sure that's the asherah, happiness, right? Yes, asherah, happiness. Like uh, when Jesus is giving the Beatitudes, and he's saying, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. He's really saying, happy are, happy are, happy are, makarios in the Greek New Testament, asherah in the Hebrew Old Testament. Happy are they who keep my ways. There are so many miserable people out there chasing happiness and they don't know what they're chasing. All it really takes is to occupy with Christ, to dwell in the Word of God. Heed instruction and be wise. Do not neglect it. That's what happens when you start letting it drift. Happy is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doorposts. For he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me injures himself and all those who hate me love death. And of course, by the time we get to this chapter, we're going to realize that Proverbs chapter 8 is talking specifically about Jesus Christ. And of course, finding Christ means you found eternal life. Rejecting Christ, hating Christ, results in eternal death in the lake of fire. 
All right, that's it for the parental wisdom portion of Proverbs. We have a handful of other uses here, chapter 12. Now, this is in the second section, when you're in chapters 10 through 24, you're dealing with the, the little snippets. You're dealing with the pithy statements. You're dealing with the, the uh, individual Proverbs line by line. So uh, there may not be a lot of connection with the verses before and the verses after. But in Proverbs 12, 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. 13.1, a wise son accepts his father's discipline, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. That's the thing. If you're picking and choosing and listening to what you want to listen to, listen, listening to the stuff you agree with, listen to the stuff that sounds pleasant, but the stuff that's kind of hostile or ugly or, well, what did wisdom say? You need it. It's all true. It's all pure. You just are calling it ugly because you don't like it. Thirteen eight. The ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but the poor hears no rebuke. Interesting context. Proverbs fifteen, verses twenty nine, thirty one, and thirty two. Another triplet there at the end of chapter fifteen. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. See, this is uh, this was the concept that left the Pharisees befuddled. They couldn't figure out how Jesus was healing folks, like the man born blind episode, for example. And they were trying to get the man to testify against Jesus as being a sinner. And the man, you know, well, what, what can we say? You know, God doesn't hear sinners, but God's obviously hearing this guy because he's healing me. It was undeniable that Jesus was serving God the Father. The miracles were being done. And, and this proverb kept bugging the Pharisees. God doesn't hear sinners. <laughs> The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Verse 31, he whose ear ear listens to the life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. He who neglects discipline despises himself. That comes up again here in chapter 1. We'll see this, the uh, self-damage that's done, self-destruction. But he who listens to reproof acquires understanding. How many people do you know are on a self-destructive course in their life? And would it not be better to simply humble themselves under the Word of God and start occupying with Christ and today be better than tomorrow? <laughs> okay? As far as the repentance is concerned. How long do you want to wait? Oh. I am plugged in. See, I thought the screen was dim. All right. No comment. <laughs> There's a metaphor there, but we'll let that go. Does that look brighter too? Was it kind of dim earlier? All right, that's a clue. Next time you see that dim screen. <clears throat> All right. That's chapter 15, chapter 18. He who gives an answer before he hears, it is a folly and a shame to him. (laughs) Right? How many people do you know, they don't know anything, they don't have any information, but boy, they'll sure give you all the information. They think they know it all. They haven't heard any of it. But don't confuse them with the facts. They already know before you tell them anything. All right? 
19.20. Listen to counsel and accept discipline that you may be wise the rest of your days. See, this is the thing. I think it's unfortunate. It starts when you're young, but you never leave it. You never leave it. We saw that in, in, in the earlier verses here in chapter 1 about a wise man will hear and increase in learning. A man of understanding will acquire a wise counsel. It never stops. And if you ever reach the point that you think you've arrived or you know enough or you don't need to go to Bible class anymore or whatever, or you start to think, well, that young whippersnapper, what can he teach me? Wait a minute. Okay? Um, you can't always have pastors that are biologically older than you. Just that's not how life works. And at a certain point, you've got to have the humility to say, uh, the Lord has provided this gifted shepherd and he's going to feed me from, from the truth of the Word of God. And it's the Holy Spirit that teaches anyway. Different aspects there. I've been hunting through some of mom's old photographs and it's hilarious how uh, a lot of you people used to be real young 20 years ago. Was, uh... <laughs> and then the pictures of Sharon and I, man, I just laugh at some of these things. But I was reminded that uh, when I became pastor, um, nobody was younger than me except the teenagers, except the, the, the prep school. Isaac Rink was 17. And he was the, um, that's how low you had to go to find somebody in the church younger than me. All right? So the, the principle here in this application is uh, if you want to be wise the rest of your days, then uh, you never can abandon the provision of God's wisdom. All right, and then many plans in a man's heart like that one too, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. That's the one I go to every so often when I think I've got a harebrained idea. I say, Lord, I want your counsel, not mine. Uh, Verse 27 of the same chapter. Cease listening, my son, to discipline. (laughs) Go ahead, stop today if you want. Here's the result. Cease listening, my son, to discipline, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. The day you quit listening to the Word of God is the day you start being conformed to this cosmos, conformed to this ion, all right? Because it's only through the renewing of your mind that you are not going to be conformed as per Romans chapter 12. It never stops, not on this earth. The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made both of them. 21, 28, a false witness will perish, but the man who listens to the truth will speak forever. 22, 17, incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your mind to my knowledge. You know, um, doctrine takes work, right? It's not like, uh, it's not elevator music. It's not just something that you listen to and you just kind of don't give it much thought, right? It's kind of pleasant, sounds nice. And then, you get to the floor, the door is open, you step off, and you never think of it again. Okay? No. You listen, you pay heed, and then it takes thought. Then you've got to work it through. Then you've got to let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Then you've got you to compare Scripture with Scripture. You've got to search out to see if these things are so. Apply your mind to my knowledge. Apply your mind. I love that. Gird your minds for action, we're told, right? I love those kind of verses. Let my people think is the motto of Ravi Zacharias, right? It is. We are to love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, mind, soul, and strength. But the mind part of that means it requires rational thought. Which is why churches like this are kind of small. (laughs) Okay? It's not popular. You mean I got to think? I got to work at it? 
there's a whole crowd of folks they don't want that i mean their their week is hard enough with work and career whatever else they're trying to figure out they just want to sit and listen and be told they're they're okay Listen, my son, and be wise. Direct your heart in the way. Listen to your father who begot you. Do not despise your mother when she is old. Those are both in Proverbs 23. That's verse 19 and verse 22. 25, 10, 10 and 12. In Proverbs 25, we've got a new context. Remember, this is now the book of Hezekiah, the Proverbs that were added to the collection in Hezekiah's day. Verse 8 says, Do not go out hastily to argue your case. Otherwise, what will you do in the end when your neighbor humiliates you? Uh, Argue your case with your neighbor and do not reveal the secret of another. Or he who hears it will reproach you and the evil report about you will not pass away. Dealing with lawsuits and reputation in the community and things. We'll get to that. Um, (laughs) Like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. We'll talk about earrings in other cases too when you stick it on a pig snout. Different uh, verses like that in the book of Proverbs as well. Proverbs 28.9, almost done. He who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer, is an abomination. What's your prayer life like if you're not a, a disciple? If you're not living in the Word of God? If you're not daily in the Word, if you're not being saturated with truth? If you don't have a ready ear, why do you have such a ready mouth for asking for this, asking for that, asking, begging help, 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 help. Father, my life's a wreck. Yeah, your life's a wreck because you're not listening to the Word of God. All right? And if you think there's a quick fix or an escape out of that, you need to repent of the, the attitude that's rejecting truth. Plus, it's so immature when, you're, when you have a prayer life that's not shaped by what you're learning anyway. Finally, Proverbs 29, 24. The last use of Shema in the Proverbs. Verse uh, 24, yeah. He who is a partner with a thief hates his own life. He hears the oath but tells nothing. And uh, that actually is a concept coming up here in chapter 1. If you become a partaker with wickedness, they're going to invite you to. They'll say, hey, throw in your lot with us. We'll have one purse. We're all going to profit together with this. Well... If you're going to be a partner with a thief, yeah, that's not a good, not a good circumstance. Okay, so, well, there's your 30 uses. Hear and do not forsake. Shama, to hear, to listen, to obey, to pay heed, to pay heed with the certainty that this is something that you need to comprehend, something you need to know. You need to base your life on what it is that you're hearing. If you miss this message, you're going to, you're going to suffer for it. If you don't receive the instruction, God himself is taking the time to teach us today, why am I not paying attention? The creator, God of the universe, has made provision for this lampstand to be fed on this day. And I'm going to blow it off and say, well, you know, take it or leave it. I've got other things to do. Wait a minute. Hear and do not forsake. Secondly, we want to talk about the adornment of wisdom. Some point B now. Again, parents must instill divine norms and standards. Parents must instill divine norms and standards. The metaphor is adornment. 
As you are instilling this upon your children, you are dressing your children. You are decorating your children. Your children are dressing themselves. They are decorating themselves. All right? And the adornment here is external. It is visible. It is jewelry. It is decorative. It is not, um, as the world would have us, to uh, keep your keep your faith private, meaning shove it in a drawer somewhere and don't tell me about it. Or, you know, you can have your faith, but just keep that to yourself. No, we're supposed to wear it as an adornment. It is supposed to be visible and decorative and attractive, and it's supposed to sustain us, and it should be a witness to others. The adornment of wisdom pictures the favor of a king in bestowing his favor. The Bible says quite a bit about uh, adornment and what happens when somebody else dresses you. Okay? Uh, if it's a king that's dressing you, that's a high honor. Uh, if it's a father ad- uh, adorning his children or a husband adorning his wife. See, we saw some of those verses on Sunday about uh, dressing the, the young girl and, and uh, dressing the, uh, the husband, dressing his wife and adorning his wife with the, uh, the beautiful adornments. All right? The adornment of wisdom, which we see here in Proverbs 1 9. It's going to come back again in chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 6, again and again and again in the parental wisdom portion of Proverbs. The adornment of wisdom pictures the favor of a king in bestowing his favor. And this is really what we get to bestow. You know, if, if a king can bestow rewards, what do we bestow as parents? Right? We bestow rewards. We bestow treasures. We bestow adornments. And I'm not going to, you know, I joke sometimes and people say, Pastor, can I ask you something? And I say, yes, up to half my kingdom, right? Like I've got a kingdom, okay? But the idea is, is what, anything I have to bestow, what am I going to bestow, okay? And for parents to bestow upon their children, what are they going to bestow upon their children? I know the world's got their own definitions, right? That, that to raise, raise up children, you're a loser if you don't do, you know, these eight things, okay? That's what the world says. What does the Bible say? What is it that we adorn them with? What is it we equip them with so that they can step up in their generation in the plan of God? All right. Well, let's look at these. Proverbs 1.9, uh, after it says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. They are. What are they? The instructions, the teachings, the, the content that father and mother are instilling upon their children, the doctrinal content. They are a graceful wreath to your head. That's pretty visible. Right? That's out there on full display. It's, uh, I think it's, uh, there's a whole lot of doctrine here too related to victory, related to the wreath that's bestowed, related to uh, the attractiveness of it, the desirability of it. You know, uh, Eve failed in her sin because it was desirable to make her wise. And Satan's uh, seduction uh, twists what God provides. No, the Word of God is a graceful wreath. We should desire it. We should find it attractive, and we should display it. Likewise, a wreath on the head speaks of victory. A wreath on the head speaks of success, all right? And it's, it's so sad how we've allowed the world to redefine success and uh, how it is that uh, the, the tempter can 
tempt us if he just beats us down in our self-esteem as if we're a bunch of losers or something, right? Hmm. Yeah? No, we're conquerors. We're more than conquerors in Christ, all right? And uh, no matter how often the world tries to tell me I'm a loser, I just say, well, okay, I might buy into it for a little while, but then I'll confess my sin, get back in fellowship and say, <laughs> um, no, I'm a victor. I'm in Christ. And maybe I am the biggest loser in the history of the church age. I'm still in Christ. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. I've got a wreath on my head. And then ornaments about your neck. Ornaments about your neck. Again, it's decorative. It's functional. It's to be on display. Um, around your neck is nice because that uh, keeps you from losing it. Okay, <laughs> You know? Ornaments about your neck. Comes back again in chapter 3. Uh, my son, let them not vanish from your sight. Keep sound wisdom and discretion so they will be life to your soul and adornment to your neck. Adornment to your neck. So you can't lose it. If you lose something wrapped around your neck, probably it means you lost your head and don't need it anymore anyway, right? <laughs> no, it's right there. It's close at hand. It's hanging from your neck. It's probably, who knows, under your shirt, against your chest, wherever it is. But it's right there within reach. It's right there. Adornments to your neck. Chapter 4 and verse 9. Acquire wisdom. Here it is again. When I was a son to my father, tender and only son on the side of my mother, in verse 3, remember Bathsheba was grieving over the loss of that child. And then David comforted her, and here's a replacement child. Here is Solomon now. And Solomon, she took great delight in Solomon. And um, then he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live. Acquire wisdom, acquire understanding. Do not forget her, or, nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, and she will guard you. Love her, and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom, and with all your acquiring, get understanding. Prize her, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. See, and this is using marital terminology of how you would uh, treat your, your wife. And yet, uh, using the, the metaphor here to explain the, the care we're supposed to have with the Word of God. She will place on your head a garland of grace. She will present you with a crown of beauty. And then finally, 621. My son, observe the commandment of your father. Do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. And when you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk to you. And of course, it's interesting how uh, the Jewish people actually took this literally and created tassels, created uh, things for their phylacteries to hang around their necks. They, they actually took these metaphors and made them real. And, uh, well, okay. I'm not going to mock that. I think we're better off if we understand them as the metaphors that they are. Now, the picture here, though, relates to the favor of a king and bestowing his favor. And a couple of examples of this, Genesis 41:42 and Daniel 5:29. I think we're probably familiar with both of these uh, chapters. Genesis 41:42. I mean, it's a great honor to uh, have something bestowed on you. 
If you're an athlete and they put a medal around your neck, or you're a general and they put an award on you, or um, different things there. Genesis 41, 42. Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I've set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand, put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold necklace, the gold necklace, around his neck, and had him ride in his second chariot. And they proclaimed before him, Bow the knee, and he set him over all the land of Egypt. All right? This is what God does when we take in His Word. He's bestowing His treasures upon us. It's far better than any Pharaoh of Egypt letting you ride in a chariot. All right? We have eternal truth. Daniel 5.29. This one's a little bit tongue-in-cheek because uh, I think Belshazzar um, is expecting to die. And so he says, okay, I'll decorate you, and you can die with me when we get conquered tonight. But still, there is a principle that's here. In Daniel 5, the writing shows up on the wall and none of the wise guys can interpret it. So finally they bring Daniel in and uh, the, the king's an unbeliever. He doesn't want to hear what it has to say. But he's kind of bloviated and he's made some promises. And so he says, well, okay, if you can read this and interpret it, I'll give you a reward. And um, the reward isn't really, in his mind, much of a reward anyway. A third of the kingdom? Well, we're going to be conquered tonight anyway. The reward is almost, in Belshazzar's mind, a death sentence. Saying, okay, <laughs> I'll dress you up like the king so that when they conquer us tonight, you'll be among the first killed. Anyway. Um, Daniel uh, says, I don't care about your reward. I'm, gonna, I'm here to serve the Lord and to uh, accomplish this. Back in verse 16, he says here, uh, in verse 15, the wise men and the conjurers are brought in before me that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they couldn't declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you, that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems now. If you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. Remember, Belshazzar himself was only co-regent. His father was, uh, was king, and he was the co-regent. And Daniel answered and said before the king, keep your gifts for yourself or give your reward to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make its interpretation known to him. Daniel says, I'm not here to get rewarded by you. Anyway, so he uh, reads it, Mene, Mene, Tikal, Upharshin, and interprets it. Your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the, Pers- the Persians. By the way, those armies that have been surrounding uh, Babylon now for the last eight months or whatever it was, Babylon had been under siege for some time prior to this night. They felt invincible. Our walls are tall. They can't conquer us. The river flows through. We have all the water we need, all the food we need. We're, uh, we're invincible. Well, any Gentile kingdom that thinks they're invincible... I think they're in trouble. So um, anyway, then Belshazzar gave orders and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a, gold, uh, put a necklace of gold around his neck, issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as third ruler of the kingdom. And in that same night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. But notice Daniel wasn't slain. He continues on. He's, the Lord uses him to serve the Persians. In any event, 
I like this. It's an interesting chapter. Not only do righteous kings want to decorate their faithful servants, but unrighteous kings want to decorate their faithful servants. The devil wants to decorate his faithful servants. There is such thing as satanic promotion. There is the wealth of mammon that the, the adversary loves to pour forth on folks. And then it leaves them all confused, thinking that, oh, God must be happy with us. We have all this money. Well, there is a God who's very happy with you because you have all that money. Stop and consider. Who are you serving? Ultimately, when we get to the New Testament, we realize that these metaphors have a spiritual reality behind them. 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 and 10. 1 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4. This adornment is the inner beauty that the New Testament communicates. And of course, we understand both sides of this. These passages that do teach inner beauty do not teach outer ugly, okay? <laughs> We're not saying that don't dress up or don't look attractive or don't... That's not what it says. It says don't only do that, okay? And uh, the first priority needs to be the inner beauty. So 1 Timothy 2.9, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. And so there is indeed an external uh, attractiveness that has to be uh, exemplified on a modest basis, with modesty. But rather by means of good works, as is proper for women, making a claim to godliness. Beyond the externals is the uh, internals, the inner beauty. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. and goes on to describe things there. 1 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4. Your adornment must not be merely external. And I like the helping word merely in there, or only external, and so forth. Yes, you have external adornment, but don't stop with that. Make sure that uh, the outer beauty is simply a reflection of the inner beauty that's already there. The braiding of hair, the wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses. But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. All that outer beauty is perishable, right? All the outer beauty. You can decorate it all you want. It's still getting older every year, right? It's, it wrinkles more. It sags more. It takes more makeup, whatever it takes, okay? <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble. I'll stop right that. But the inner beauty, imperishable quality, precious in the sight of God. And that's the beauty that just gets more and more and more and more and more. Enticements require consent. So don't give it. Enticements require consent. If you believe that we have been created in the image of God and that we are morally accountable, volitionally accountable, that we reap what we sow, we don't reap what we are sovereignly, robotically forced to sow, we reap what we choose to sow. And we are accountable. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. We saw this in Romans. Do not let sin reign over you that you obey its lusts. Don't let it. It cannot force you to do what you do not let it do. This is a principle in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
If sinners entice you, do not consent. Was the old Nancy Reagan just say no? Okay, didn't know that was biblical, did you? <laughs> well, there it is. Do not consent. Just say no. The enticement does not force you. We are we are sovereign within our accountability as God has designed us in our human capacity. Enticements require consent, so don't give it. This, by the way, is my, always my advice, <laughs> even in earthly terms. In uh, learned this a long time ago in my law enforcement career. There are uh, consent searches as well as warrant searches, right? In a consent search, the, the police officer doesn't need a warrant. The police officer simply searches by virtue of your consent. And sometimes they're pretty tricky about how they ask for that consent. They've got you pulled over, you're on the side of the road or whatever, and they, they ask, mind if I look in your trunk? Or can I take a look in your trunk? Or is it all right with you if I see what's in your trunk or whatever? What he's doing is he's asking for your consent. And then as he writes his report, he can indicate that he, with your consent, he searched whatever. All right? And that's huge in the legal realm. Because if he does not have your consent, he needs a warrant. And that's just simply the, the nature of our uh, Fourth Amendment privileges, right? We, we have blessings and protections against unreasonable search and seizure, okay? Fifth Amendment, whatever. In any event, I learned a long time ago as a police officer when those kind of questions were being asked to simply smile and say, are you requesting my consent for a consent search? And then they realize, oh, this guy knows what he's talking about. <laughs> I do not consent. If you want to search whatever, search whatever, but go get a warrant and search whatever. That's my personal, I'm not saying that's Bible, I'm saying that's my personal application. Okay? Because I believe in the laws of divine establishment, that there is volition, marriage, family, and nations, and each one has its boundaries. In any event, um, do not consent. Because you don't have to. Sinners enticing you, don't do it. If he tells you how much fun it is, don't do it. If he tells you how much money you're going to make, don't do it. If he's going to tell you that everybody else is doing it, don't do it. Because the God of the universe says don't. The Word of God has made clear that what it is He's enticing you to do is incompatible with God's absolute standard of righteousness. It's an enticement. Don't do it. You want to be an imitator of Christ? Say no to the enticements. He was tempted in all things, even as we are, yet without sin. So if sinners entice you, do not consent. Now, how simple is that? <laughs> okay. Well, you say it's not that easy. You don't understand. It's not that easy. Well, wait a minute. I agree that there are circumstances and there are conditions and there are venues and there are places whereby the temptations are a lot harder. Sure. There are, there are times and places and uh, circumstances where um, it's a lot harder to say no than other times and places and circumstances. So my question then is to you, why did you put yourself in those times and places and circumstances as opposed to these times and places and circumstances? See, the Bible also says to make no provision for the flesh with regard to its lust, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. And we're going to see this young man lacking sense. He's going to the wrong part of town at the wrong time of day. So he's already making volitional choices that are having impact on future volitional choices. 
And once you've started down that road, it's, it's a downhill slope. Okay? So make better choices ahead of time. We're going to talk about this. How it is when you're in fellowship, you can make the best choices possible so that down the road you can actually make uh, a preemptive provision ahead of time. Say, so I think this is going to be a problem for me, so let me take this step now to take that off the table, to remove that as a consideration. I don't want to face whatever. Okay? Enticements require consent, so don't give it. The bloodshedding mindset has easy money in view, but fails to see the self-harm consequences. The bloodshedding mindset. The bloodshedding mindset. There's a lot of reality in this. The bloodshedding mindset has easy money in view, but fails to see the self-harm consequences. In fact, they deny it. Oh, there's no hurt in this. Come on, it'll be fun. Right? There's no consequences. It won't hurt. We'll get away with it. What's to stop you? See, if they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without cause. This is the blood-shedding mindset. This is um, pretty common in the world today. Maybe a little alien, depending on, uh, because we've been so sheltered in our culture, in our nation. But depending on, uh, well, I don't know, depending on what part of town you grew up in. It's more common in certain neighborhoods where might makes right and who you have to hurt doesn't matter. Uh, The shedding of blood. Are you squeamish about that? Most people aren't. Okay? Because life has been so cheapened. Because what I want is all that matters. And so armed robbery with a deadly weapon, um, whatever it takes, assault with bodily injury, whatever, it doesn't matter. I want what I want. And the whole criminal mindset, even to the point of shedding blood, even to the point of taking a human life, doesn't matter. Life is cheap. Because my wants outweigh any, anything else. It's a blood-shedding mindset. And it's totally at odds with the revealed Word of God, whereby life is in the blood, and whereby the shedding of blood is a significant voluntary sacrifice on the part of the Son to redeem us, to satisfy the Father, and to bring us to uh, eternal glory. So if they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without cause. I think this is a, a remarkable statement. And I think, um, you know, maybe believers in their carnality, they, they'll go a certain way, they'll go a certain distance in their carnality, but they wouldn't want to hurt anybody else, right? Well, sadly though, how long does it take before you've gone to that carnality so many times, you're now so deep in that carnality, and now you actually are hurting other people? You say you're not, or maybe you weren't at first, but you surely are now. And what are the consequences to your wife, to your children, to your church, to your family? All right. Yeah, you're shedding blood, all right. Let us swallow them alive like shale, even whole as those who go down to the pit. We will find all kinds of precious wealth. We will fill our houses with spoil. Man, this is easy money. You can't lose. 
these get-rich-quick schemes. Like, come on, you realize that? You're not going to... You know, you know why? I mean, the, 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 the hoodlums and the, the thugs of our, of our city, what are they going to do? Go work for minimum wage at McDonald's flipping burgers? You know the kind of money they can make dealing crack? They can make some, they can make some bucks dealing crack, pushing their prostitutes and all the stuff they're doing. They're going to replace that with uh, a W-2 form and filing their taxes and, and, and functioning within the, within the law? Cosmos mindset doesn't go there. In fact, they, they, they view that as, as a chump way of living. But the self-harm consequences, we'll come back to this next week and see it's their own blood. In verse 18, they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own, I think it's nefesh there, their own nefeshim, their own souls. Am I right? So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. If you take by violence, you're actually damaging your soul. This universe is not designed with a might-makes-right approach. God's design is for the strong to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. All right, so that's for next week. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for the truth of your word. I pray that you would open our eyes to understand how we embrace wisdom and how we listen, how we pay heed, how we reject the enticements, Father. The enticements are at complete odds with your wisdom. So, Father, instill your wisdom within each one of us that we can resist these uh, enticements. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.